we're going to look at the whole issue of church and mission this morning. And um, if you are part of the church here, or maybe you're coming regularly, you'll know that we're working through a, um, a, a book in the Bible called Acts, which is written by a man called Luke, and it's a, an account, a history of some of the highlights and the significant events during the first 30 years of the, uh, the life of the early church. And uh, we're looking to explore this as we work through it, because we believe that God's um, truth and the things recorded in Scripture are relevant for us today. And um, I want us uh, uh, just to come to this uh, passage in Acts 20 um, to think afresh, particularly uh, on the issue of the church and mission this morning. I'm going to begin by um, reading an article from the Sunday Times called How Philip Mould Found a Gainsborough on eBay. The writer of the Times writes, As a teenager, Philip Mould loved to perform magic tricks. He's still at it now. Indeed, in his 22 years as a debonair dealer and sleuth of English portraiture, he has become one of the greatest conjurers in the business. Through discovery, restoration and historical research, he has Shazam, found lost paintings, turned unloved tat into minor art gems and traded portraits that have unstitched the seams of history. One of his most treasured findings, a jolly portrait of a country squire, is sitting with us now, perched on an easel in the office of Mould's Mayfair Gallery. The story of its discovery is related in his new book, Sleuth, about his adventures in the high art world. The dealer first saw the painting two years ago while idly browsing on eBay. It was described as an American school 19th century. Although it was clearly overpainted, and in a radio interview, Mould describes how it looked like what he called an ugly pub sign, Mould became convinced in one of the nervous, thrilling moments that have punctuated his career that he was onto something. He bought the lot for less than $200. When the painting arrived in London, Mould decided for the first and last time in his career, that he would start the restoration work himself. And again, in the radio interview, he speaks of how he took a bottle of acetone and begins to strip off thick, ugly layers of paint that were over this portrait. He calls the painting Mr. eBay. He describes how as he removed some of the layers of paint, he began to discover that this was actually not just an old piece of tap, but a beautiful, extraordinary, original portrait by the painter Gainsborough. The recent private sale of Mr. eBay, the writer says, must have had the dealer chuckling all the way to the bank. I can't give you the exact figure, he says, suddenly coy. This is not a great Gainsborough, but his portraits can sell from anything from 15,000 to 5 million pounds. Let's just say he paid for a couple of months' overheads at the gallery. You know, for many of us, the church and mission can be a bit like that painting. We think the church is nothing more than an old piece of tat. It might just arouse our curiosity from time to time, but by and large, we think it looks a bit odd and quite unattractive. Tragically, just as that beautiful, original portrait painting had been turned into what Philip Mole calls an ugly pub sign, the church... And mission through history 
has been overpainted and overpainted. What God originally intended the church to be has been added to by tradition, cultural baggage, popular thinking and opinion, so that the result is something that for all intents and purposes looks completely odd and irrelevant and unattractive. I don't know what you think of in your mind when you hear the word church. Maybe you think of an institution. You think of something that is irrelevant to your life. Maybe something that is static and stuck in the past. Something that is insipid and ineffective and weak. I know that my own experience um, before I became a Christian maybe 19 years ago was many of those things would have come into my mind uh, when I heard the word church. I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word mission or missionary. Maybe you think of oddballs who live in jungles or maybe your mind conjures up pictures of lone ranger preachers who are out of touch with the modern world and travel to far off places with their families. Well, as we're looking through the book of Acts, what we're doing is getting a fresh look at what God originally intended the church and mission to be. And what God wants to do as we're doing this is to take the acetone, if you like, of the Holy Spirit and begin to strip off our perceptions and our preconceptions of what church and mission is so that we can have the wisdom and understanding to apply what Scripture says about the church and mission in our own situation and our own world today. The exciting thing is that as we begin to strip off some of these layers and we begin to lay aside some of these preconceptions, what we discover here in the accounts of the book of Acts is something that is extraordinary and original and valuable. What we thought was maybe somebody's throwaway on eBay, we realize is actually a valuable masterpiece. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at a chapter in Acts 20. And uh, we're going to look at this as a window into what the New Testament teaches about what the church is and what mission is. Acts 20 describes Paul's travel as he returns from the region of Greece and Macedonia and is heading back towards Jerusalem and Antioch. And uh, we're going to pick up the passage in verse 17 and Paul stops off here at a small harbour town called Miletus. Let me read from verse 17 to verse 38, and then we're going to make some comments on this and explore what it means. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. 
But I do not account my life of any value, not as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This passage clearly has got some very particular application for those, in, those of us in eldership and in leadership. But I believe that it gives us a wonderful window into how Paul approached his mission in the city of Ephesus. John last week was preaching about that clash of kingdoms that occurred during Paul's three years in Ephesus and the way the gospel came to that major metropolis. The New Testament gives us these windows, and the book of Acts gives us these windows into what it was like to be in the early church, and what mission meant for these early Christians. I just want to just remind you of a few bits of information about Ephesus, because I think they're applicable to our own situation. Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and if you've been to Turkey, you may well have been on a tour uh, to the the ancient city of Ephesus. It's fairly well-preserved. It was one of the most important metropolises in the Mediterranean world. It was the the centre for that whole region of Asia that Paul visited. It was a very religious centre, as John was explaining last week. It was populated by probably up to about half a million people. And Paul, during his time of traveling through that region, spent three years in this city of Ephesus. That was a relatively long time for Paul to be in one particular place. He was sometimes weeks, sometimes months, but very rarely more than a year or so in a town. Here in Ephesus, he spent three years And during that three years, in this major city of Ephesus, Paul began a flourishing local church in the city. During his three years, we know that along with that large metropolis church, 
Paul and his associates also planted at least three other churches within the wider region. And as many possibly as up to eight other church plants occurred during that time. When you read through the rest of the New Testament, um, you, you look, for example, in the beginning of John's letter to Revelation, he addresses and sends letters to a number of these local churches. They were within that region of Asia that Paul was based in for three years. What can we learn then about mission and church from this passage? First thing I want to talk about is the priority of the local church in terms of mission. Because what we find here and throughout the New Testament is that central to mission is the planting and establishing of local church communities. We find that as we read between the lines of Paul's own life and ministry. Paul was a man who was clearly rooted into a local church in Antioch. He was sent out through the direction of the Holy Spirit from that local church community. And as we read the history of his journeys and his mission, we discover that wherever he went, his aim and objective was to preach the gospel, sure, but then see people gathered and knit together into local church communities. He didn't consider his work completed until that had happened. We find that Paul's ministry is focused on encouraging and serving and teaching these local churches. The letters that we have throughout our New Testament are not letters written to individual Christians scattered within a region. They're written to local church families that many of them Paul himself had personally uh, planted and seen established. When he talks here to the elders of Ephesus about his three years there, and he speaks of how he has poured out his life during those three years, admonishing them night and day with tears and with trials and with challenges. He's talking about how he has poured his life into seeing a local church established in that metropolis. We know, as I've mentioned, that also a minimum of three other churches were planted by Paul and his associates during that period. And possibly up to eight churches sprung up within the region during those three years. That's not bad going, is it? For three years of ministry. Here, as he lands back in Miletus, close to Ephesus, on his way to Jerusalem, the first thought in Paul's heart and mind is this local church that he's begun in Ephesus. It's possible that he's already heard that there are some problems there that need resolving. Um, He certainly senses that there are some real challenges that they're soon going to be facing. He talks, doesn't he, about how wild uh, animals are going to come in. That's not literally, he's speaking figuratively there. He talks of how there are going to be Uh, There's going to be teaching that arises that's going to confuse and mislead people in the church. Paul's heart is full of a passion for this local church. And so he gathers the elders during this 48-hour opportunity he's got in the harbour town of Miletus to give them one final charge and encouragement and challenge before he himself moves on to Jerusalem. He challenges them to serve the church well and to see that the mission is in no way hindered. What do we learn from all this then? We learn 
that this church was central to Paul's mission. That his mission was not a haphazard, unfocused thing. And that neither was he content just to simply turn up somewhere and preach the gospel and call for a response. He intentionally set out to plant and establish local churches. And in his thinking and in his approach to mission, church and mission were not two separate entities in a way. They were inseparable. David Bosch, who is a missiologist, writes this. He says, because church and mission belong together from the beginning, a church without mission or a mission without the church are both contradictions. Such things do exist, but only as pseudo-structures. Now, that doesn't mean that we are all called to plant churches. What it does mean, however, is that mission is not something that a few radicals do on the parameters or outside of the parameters of local church, but something that everyone does within the parameters and within the context of seeing local churches planted and established. It means also that neither is mission something that produces ministries or works that are themselves somehow totally unrelated to local churches. The model we see here in Paul is that mission is focused on local church. And as we engage in mission in our own culture, it's crucial that we also don't separate those two things. That is true whether our mission is within our own neighbourhood or whether our mission is in the ends of the earth in some far-off nation. See, it's sometimes easy to follow this through, or easier to follow this through on our own doorstep and within our own context, when we wouldn't dream of doing mission separate from local church. But for some reason, often we can think that because we get on an aeroplane and do mission somewhere else, that this value and this, um, this reality... Um, changes. It doesn't. Wherever we do mission, I believe we must be looking to do it in a way that's connected with local church. If you've read the section on our website on mission, you'll see that this is reflected there. And um, that's up on the screen behind you. Just a simple statement of how our mission approach is church-based. It acknowledges and reflects the centrality of the local church in God's plan to fulfill his mission on the earth And that means that we give priority to initiatives that contribute to the planting and establishing of local churches. What's the application for us then? Firstly, we need to ensure that in our thinking we don't separate these two things. Secondly, we need to ensure that any mission we do has some clear integration with local church. So if we're doing a summer team or we're giving a portion of our time to serving a mission in some way, I would encourage you to ensure that in some way that is connected to a local church within the locality in which you're serving God in mission. And thirdly, it means we need to plant more churches. Now you may be sat there thinking, haven't we ticked that box? Well, I don't believe we have. As long as there are towns full of people who have not yet heard the good news, and there are still many towns like that within our own district and within our own own county and certainly within our own nation, 
There are churches that need to be planted. We live in a city that has a dearth of wonderful churches. And uh, on the Just Ten event, we're working uh, very closely with many of those churches um, to stage that event. But not every city or town in the UK is like that. There are many that have very few, if any, thriving local churches. Let alone Europe and other parts of the world that we live in. So we need to plant more churches. Now if you're a visitor here this morning, that might begin to sound rather strange to you. You may have thought of the church as something static or slowly dying. And the media certainly often represents the church in that way. But that's not the whole story. Yeah, we believe that God has called us up with a vision and a mission to see many, many people understanding just what Jesus Christ has done for them in a way that makes sense for them. And the best approach to that is for us to plant churches in as many towns as we possibly can. So that's the first thing we learn is the priority of the local church. Second thing I want to talk about that we see very clearly reflected here is the importance of partnership with others. I think one of the reasons why we feel such a sense of grief and shock um, with, 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 with Dave Colbrook's death this morning and feel for the family is because these are friends. These are partners in the mission with us. Uh, a number of us have got, I'm sure, as I have, many precious memories of, uh, of Dave whilst he was here, but also after he's moved to Hook. Partnership with others in this mission is a key value that we see modelled in the life of Paul. You see, this mission that we're on is not some cold, informal organisation with a catchy strap line and a logo. It is people in partnership and relationship together, serving the purpose of God in their own generation and their own situation. What we see reflected here is a clear relationship between the church in Ephesus and Paul. And there's a few features of this partnership. It involved clearly close personal relationship. Paul is a friend to this church. He's not a stranger to them. He reminds them of the three years that he was there with them. He says, he reminds them of how they knew him. They knew how he lived amongst them. They knew the things he was passionate about. They knew the things that irritated him. And during that three years, it's probable that Paul literally lived and lodged in some of their homes. He was very much part of this church community. He wasn't a professional preacher who was unconnected relationally with them. He didn't fly in and preach a sermon and then fly out again. He lived amongst them. He was in partnership with them. And that meant that there was clearly a, a clear emotional bond between them that we see reflected here. There's a lot of tears mentioned in this passage. I don't know if you, um, you were alerted to that. There's the tears of pain that Paul cried personally through the challenges that he faced during his time in Ephesus. There's the tears of compassion and concern that he shed as he taught and admonished them and appealed to them to respond to what Jesus had done for them. But there's also the tears that they shed when he tells them that they're not going to see his face again, that are the result of the emotional 
tearing and pain of suddenly realizing that a chapter has been closed in terms of their personal relationship with him. Clearly, this partnership in the mission involved a very close bond. They were close enough to feel free to cry in one another's presence. Paul was a friend. He wasn't some guy on a list who'd been appointed to do a task. He was in community and relationship with them. Neither was he a lone ranger missionary. In fact, chapter 20 begins by describing a team of at least seven individuals that Paul, during this stage of his journeys, was traveling with. And that was, in every uh, occasion and on every leg of his journeys, a practice of Paul. He was not a lone ranger missionary. In fact, Corinthians, he speaks of how he refused to preach the gospel on one occasion in Troas because he found his friend Titus wasn't there and he didn't feel at peace in his heart to continue the mission on his own. For Paul, mission wasn't a solitary occupation. It was about partnership and friendship on a mission with others. Relationship and mission are not New Testament in New Testament terms in opposition to one another. We serve God's mission together in partnership with others. They belong together. Another aspect of this partnership is that it involved a leadership role. Paul was clearly one of them, and yet he exercised a leadership role amongst them. That was primarily, I think, through the teaching that he refers to. Um, It happened later on, even when he wasn't physically there, as he gave instructions to Timothy, who was later appointed to work out some issues in that local church. He meets here with the elders, and he's clearly bringing a, a sense of challenge and charge to them. And so although there was a partnership and a sense of togetherness, there was also a sense of authority that Paul carried within the context of that partnership. Another thing that we learn about partnership here is that it involves changes in relationship. Although there was this deep emotional bond between Paul and the church of Ephesus, that relationship went through changes and seasons. There was a season, comparatively a long one, when Paul literally lived amongst them. He had his house up the street, Or he was lodging in someone's home and they would see him day in and day out. And for three years he literally lived with them in the city of Ephesus. But that was only a season. There was another season when Paul then moved on from Ephesus to preach the gospel in other regions beyond. Kept in touch. Here he passes through and as he's passing through they physically see him again as he visits for a a short time. That was another season that they went through. But here, in Acts 20, we find that there is a further season that Paul announces to them when they will no longer see his face again. He tells them that he's moving on and that they're not going to see him again. Clearly at this stage, Paul is sensing God leading him on to Jerusalem and Rome and the regions further on in Western Europe. Timothy is sent in by Paul to help straighten things out, as I've said. But Paul himself never actually personally makes a visit again to Ephesus. What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that although relationships were absolutely vital for Paul, they were not an end in themselves. 
There was very close personal emotional bond between Paul and his friends in Ephesus. But the thing that was most important to Paul was to reach those people in regions beyond who had not yet had the opportunity to hear about what Jesus had done for them. And Paul is willing to sacrifice the relationships that he enjoys there in order to move on to those regions beyond. Although I'm sure on one level he would have loved to have settled down and lived the rest of his life in this hip happening city of Ephesus. That wasn't God's will for Paul and that wasn't ultimately what Paul decided to do. There came a time when he had to tell them they'd never see his face again. That might seem harsh, but it was rooted, I believe, in Paul's passion for those who had not yet heard and for other regions. We see something of that passion expressed in verse 24 when Paul talks of how he just wants to finish his course and the ministry he's received to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. What's the application for us then? We must work in partnership with others in this mission. Just as we want mission to be church-based, it needs to be rooted in close, personal, sincere, real partnership with one another. We need to resist doing things on our own, as Paul resisted. We need to value relationships. We need to work at building close, real friendships together as we pursue God's mission together. We need partnerships with one another in the context of the local church that we're in. But we need partnerships beyond that with others. For here it was the relationship between the church in Ephesus and Paul. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word new frontiers. For, uh, you know, for all of us it probably means something different. Sometimes it's hard to relate to. Hard to understand maybe. Particularly... Um, if you've been part of the church or part of a, a New Frontiers church post Stonely, those opportunities when we had the, you know, the joy of being at a camp together and see something of the bigger picture of many churches gathered together. Sometimes I think it's, well, I know it's easier for us as elders to understand and relate to. I'm sure that was true here of Ephesus. I can imagine uh, some of the newer Christians in Ephesus asking others in the church, well, where, where are the elders today? And, you know, someone maybe says, oh, they've gone out to Miletus to meet with Paul. And they say, well, who's Paul? You know, we've never met this guy, Paul. I think we face those kind of challenges in our own situation. Well, New Frontiers, as I understand it, is nothing less than a sincere desire just to work out this kind of partnership in our own modern situation with those that we feel that God has joined us to in this mission. Just as Ephesus related to Paul and his team, we as a local church relate to Terry Virgo and his team and have a particular relationship with Guy Miller who actually, like Paul, was in Ephesus, lived here in Winchester for a number of years and served in the church. We must work in partnership with others. We must be influenced through those partnerships with others. I want to encourage you. Um, if you've not signed up for Accelerate, that is a key opportunity for us to link up in the wider scene with others that we're in partnership with. To hear from Guy Miller and others on his team, receive direction and be influenced. The third thing is we need to embrace changes in these relationships. 
Just as the church in Ephesus went through seasons of change, so we also need to embrace that. Dear uh, Trevor and his family this morning are you know, probably feeling in their hearts something of the, the pain of moving on. I know that we feel that as we pray for them and send them on. That happens from time to time. There's an element of flexibility that we need within our partnerships and relationships. If God calls you to move on in order to serve his mission, it may be painful, but you need to embrace the change that that implies in your life. Maybe here this morning that there are others sensing God calling them to move on, maybe to be part of a church plant somewhere. I want to encourage you to, as you become convinced in God of that, to embrace the pain and the change uh, that that will bring into your situation. Paul worked in partnership with others. And then one final thing we find here is the power of the gospel. Paul speaks of how the church in Ephesus was simply the result of him preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a gospel of grace. He speaks of commending them to the message of God's grace. And if you're here this morning and you wonder what the what the message is that we have as a local church, it is simply this, that God in his undeserved kindness has sent Jesus Christ to deal with the problem of humanity and bring us into a close personal relationship with him on the basis of what he's done on the cross. It's a message of grace, a message of good news, a powerful message. There was a bunch of archaeologists who found a date palm seed in the nation of Israel in the 1960s. And about a year ago, they decided to experiment and see if this seed that was 2,000 years old had the ability to germinate and create a palm tree. And they planted this seed in soil, they watered it, and lo and behold... This date seed that had been dormant for 2,000 years sprung up and is now a tree. You know, the gospel's like that. It may be a simple old message, 2,000 years old, but there is inherent power in this message of grace. It had power to transform the city of Ephesus. It has power to transform lives uh, in our own city and in our own context. And all we need to do is, as Paul did, is preach it in as many opportunities as he had in many different contexts and allow the gospel and the good news of God's grace to all people to bear fruit. So let me just wind up then and encourage us. I want to encourage us to apply these things in our lives. As we look through windows, as we work through Acts, and as God strips away our perception of what the church and mission is, Let's give ourselves to mission that is church-based. Let's not be content with ticking the box with Southampton Church Plant. Let's look to God to open fresh doors for us. Let's encourage one another to be open to that. Let's work in partnership with others. Let's work at our relationships with one another and our relationships on the wider scene and beyond the parameters of the local church as we serve God in a mission together in this part of the world and let's have confidence in the power of the gospel that old, old seed that has inherent power to change lives let's just stand together I'm going to pray and uh, we'll bring things to a close there